This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses' work of character actors. I'm Stephen Porter. Live from Pod One, I'm Andrew Carroll. <laughs> and today we're covering a horror genre legend, Tom Atkins. Andrew, thrill me by giving me <laughs> Atkins's bio there. Tom Atkins was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1935. He began acting in college where he joined a drama group. He started off in Broadway and off-Broadway plays before moving to LA to pursue work in TV and film. In his film debut, he appeared opposite Frank Sinatra in 1963's The Detective. Men of action and authority figures defined much of Atkins's output throughout his career with his role as Lieutenant Deal in The Rockford Files, Dr. Dan Chalice in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, and the retired sheriff in My Bloody Valentine, 3D. <laughs> in horror, Atkins is best known for his work in the 80s, particularly his stoic everyman Nick in The Fog, Sergeant Krebs in The Ninth Configuration, Detective Cameron in Night of the Creeps, and Detective Frank McRae in Maniac Cop. Atkins was a regular collaborator of horror directors George A. Romero, John Carpenter, and Patrick Lussier. He appeared in bit parts or supporting roles in many of their films, including Creepshow, Bruiser, Escape from New York, Two Evil Eyes, Drive Angry, and The Trick. He is a regular talking head on series examining the history of horror, such as Horror's Hallowed Grounds, the In Search of Darkness films, and The Last Drive-In with Joe Bog Briggs, as well as the um, special feature on the Night of the Creeps Blu-ray, Tom Atkins' Man of Action. <laughs> which is just a 20 minute thing on like his career that's awesome yeah. did you watch for this I did yeah, yeah. it's not very cinematic um, <laughs> Atkins has continued to act well into his 80s finding as many iconic horror stars do a late second wind in his career with directors who grew up watching his films exactly yeah, so it's a tr- and on podcasts with people who grew up watching his films <laughs> yes um, yeah so it's a tradition on this show that um, in the run up to Halloween we cover character actors who mostly have worked in horror movies mm. so in the past we talked in depth about Barbara Crampton Barbara Steele Jeffrey Combs Jeffrey and Com- Tony Todd Donald Pleasance as well Donald Pleasance as well um, yeah. so people should check out those previous apps uh, if they haven't already because there's lots of good recommendations for the spooky season mm. Ooh. Um, check them out if you dare <laughs> but on uh, Atkins though you and I met up for Pints recently and to you know talk about our plans for the mm. show going forward. And We're cancelling it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Bye, but this is a farewell episode. Now, you suggested that um, if we were doing horror character actors in September and October, we should do Tom Atkins. And I showed you that I had written down Atkins' name <gasps> on a list of potential people we should call. Great so minds. That felt very kismet. Mm. But um, I must say, before preparing for this, I was only really aware of him from his most mainstream horror role, which is The Fog, a movie I mm. love, I've seen multiple times. But um, I wanted to cover him as an excuse to watch, for the first time, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, and Night of the Creeps, both much-loved films in horror circles. Mm, yeah. Um, I think you were also a big fan of uh, Night of the Creeps. I love Night of the Creeps. Halloween 3, I think, is interesting, and I would have preferred had they gone more in the direction of like anthology films as opposed to... Sure, yeah. Here's Michael Myers again, Absolutely. in a worse mask than last time. <laughs> yes. The masks always get worse. It's, it's terrible. Um, I have to admit, though, I, watch, I enjoyed everything I watched for this, and um, I get the love for Atkins, because like I feel like given his past, I think I read online that he was in the US Navy at some point when he, as a younger yeah. man, and... Um, Becoming a star later in life, like he was 45 by the time The Fog came out. He just works really well playing these rugged, tough, but um, word-weary characters. Mm. He sort of reminds me weirdly of Nick Nolte in a yeah, way, yeah. where he's kind of burly and imposing, but there are also hints of a more soulful side. And he can be very funny too, mm. in that like some of his line deliveries in the movies we watch for this are hysterical. And But he's comedic in a particular dry way that I think enables moments of levity in these horror movies without deflating their tension yeah and um, yeah what do you think about him I think he's great I yeah. think um, 
yeah, just after spending so long covering like, I guess, not necessarily final girls, but like people, uh, women who would play like either the villain or like uh, damsel in distress, damsel in distress yeah. or like the guy or, or covering men who would play the villain or the monster or kind of supporting expositionary roles like Donald Pleasance. Um, I kind of wanted to focus on, you know, someone like George C. Scott in The Exorcist 3, the man of action, the guy that sure. like grabs horror by the by the by the ears and kind of and headbutts it instead of like running in fear yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely well yeah. that's definitely tom atkins yeah absolutely yeah yeah um do you want to start off by talking about the fog sure yeah uh, do you have the plot i do tom atkins plays nick castle a fisherman in the sleepy california coastal town of antonio bay on the 100th anniversary of the town's founding nick his one night stand elizabeth played by jamie lee curtis and a ragtag group of townspeople find themselves trapped by an eerie glowing fog and the long dead leper pirates that travel within it Listen, I never hitchhiked before. I just really want to be careful. Can I ask you something? Sure. Are you weird? Yes, I am. Yes, I am weird. You are weird. Yes. You're weird, thank God. <laughs> the last ride I had was so normal, it was disgusting. Pick me up in Santa Barbara. By the time we got to Carmel, he wanted to marry me. Oh, yeah. I thought you never hitchhiked before. Not before last week. You're my 13th ride. Oh, great. Weird and unlucky. We'll see. You mentioned to me in a um, Facebook message that mm-hmm. you think this is the best-looking John Carpenter movie. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, there's a specific shot. I think it comes... I think it's kind of just as night is falling or, or like it's twilight anyway in during the second kind of night of the movie the movie takes place over two days roughly yeah and it's the second night well lots of weird stuff has happened the first night car alarms going off fog creeping in setting off electronics a fishing boat has disappeared on the second night shit really kicks off but there's a shot just as night is falling and they've discovered all this weird shit jo- uh, Jimmy Lee Curtis has been attacked by uh dead sailor um, and it's like a shot of these big trees and they look black against this purple sky and these rolling green hills and it's something it's the it's the one shot I always think of when I think of the fog yeah. and then next there's the glowing cross and the maggots writhing in green rotten flesh yeah. and stuff like that but that's the first thing I always think of when I think of the fog and it's like I know you have you find comfort in like snowy films I find comfort in films like the fog I guess I know I, yeah. I I completely get it because I do think that this is such a great sort of vibey movie. Like I, I find mm-hmm. it um, weirdly easy and comforting to watch because I love the aesthetic of it. The kind of as you mentioned, beautiful coastal town setting, the fog itself, which looks yeah. incredible. Um, just watching Adrian Barbeau DJ character in that lighthouse radio station doing the like late night early morning TV or radio presenter voice and yeah. things like this is KB Antonio Bay uh, taking you to the AM like <laughs> love all that stuff so um, I think it's really good and it's not a particularly it's a very spooky movie but it's not a disturbing movie so yeah. I think it's easy to just kind of throw on as opposed to a lot of other horror classics yeah it's not especially violent or it's um, it's it's just really a really solid spooky movie yeah um, yeah, no, because I like John Carpenter is one of my favorite filmmakers. Like, and I, I don't think The Fog is kind of as inventive or groundbreaking as some of his other movies, like Assault on Precinct Thirteen or Escape from mm. New York or Halloween or The Thing. 
because at its heart it is this uh, actually quite simple ghost story. Yeah. But that's kind of why I love it too in that like it's John Carpenter and his recurring collaborators like, you know, Deborah Hill, the screenwriter or cinematographer Dean Cundy applying their talents to an old fashioned story and kind of in doing so making kind of the ultimate one. Yeah. Which I really yeah. like. And um, it literally even begins with an old man around a campfire telling like a supernatural story to a bunch mm. of kids and I think the whole the movie is just a 90 minute cinematic version of one of those yeah, stories which yeah. I, I think is really cool um, yeah uh, do you want to talk about um, Tom Atkins in the film yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah he plays uh, Nick Castle whose the name is like a reference to the actor who played the orig- original Michael Myers um, a lot of I think a lot of the names in this are references. I'm not sure though. Um, anyway, that Night of the Creeps is like everyone in. Uh, yeah, yeah, Cynthia Cronenberg. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, he's like I think Atkins, as I mentioned before, is one of the few kind of action men of horror that includes like I think the most predominant one would probably be um, Bruce Campbell, who plays Ash in the Night of the or not the Night oh, in the Evil Dead films. Um, third of which I just la- watched last night. Very good, very silly. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, maybe my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's this very specific kind of generally quite small niche in horror cinema where um, you get like a guy who's like, it's not uh, like, I think what defines this kind of character is this archetype is that, you know, bravery isn't the absence of fear, it's acting in spite of fear. And I think that's kind of what has defined Atkins's work in horror in that, you know, he's terrified a lot of the time. He might not show it, um, but he acts in spite of being terrified like he's there's a bit in towards the end where they're all like trying to fend off the um the leper ghosts uh, from the church uh, from the last Blake. Blake. Right, from, from the last um from the last person that they're after because they they find a, a piece of driftwood on and it says six must die yeah and they're, six the ghosts. people died on the boat yeah so for instance um Nick he sees like um Father Malone, who's played by Hal Holbrook, um, who will come up again later, um, in Creepshow. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I, did he? Yeah, <laughs> and he, he sees um, Father Malone struggling with Blake over this glowing golden cross that uh, the ghosts need to reclaim, apparently, in order to ascend. Uh, but the kid, Adrian Barbeau's son, Andy, is in trouble. And uh, so he goes out to rescue him. And he, uh, b- before he before he's noticed this struggle between priest and ghost so he goes to rescue Andy turns sees the glowing cross and is like what the fuck he doesn't say it but it's the look in his eyes and he's like I have a reason for being here and rushes grabs Andy and goes back into relative safety where the ghosts are trying to break through the windows instead of the doors Mm. yeah because that's that's a thing that I think um, also makes this a a, a really easy watch is that I find that it's three main characters played by Adrian Barbeau Jamie Lee Curtis and Tom Atkins very endearing Mm, absolutely I think a part of that is the writing like that kind of economic carpenter storytelling where like we're given just enough information about the characters to make them feel real and lived in and also help push the plot forward a bit but it's not like Basil Exposition in Austin Powers you know showing up and being like this is me this is like my story it it feels like a natural conversation like the movie shows us that Adrian Barbeau's um, character Stevie is a single mom who also has this cool career, but it doesn't call like a lot of attention to that. Mm. And 
but also her job as a radio DJ and her son wind up playing a big role in yeah. the third act. You know? Yeah, yeah. And like, I think it's the same thing with like Jamie Lee Curtis as Elizabeth because there's the scene where she's getting closer to Atkins's character Nick when they're in bed together after uh, they've had a sexual relations. Mm. <laughs> where um, we learn that the <laughs> very secondary school teacher. Yeah, of sorry, you, Stephen. Um, we learn that the the reason she's in Antonio Bay is that um, she came from this wealthy family and had this very sheltered existence, and now she wants to travel and have some adventures and work at what she wants to do in her life. Uh, but I think the script and Jamie Lee Curtis revealed that in like two lines. Yeah. And yeah. in a way that feels like a conversation two people might actually have. And it's just enough context to explain why Elizabeth sticks around when things go so crazy. Unlike me, who would have just booked it. Yeah, you know, yeah, like I yeah. would have been out of there yeah. so quick. Um, and I also think the actors are just so charming like Atkins. Mm. Um, he's really interesting casting to me in this because I feel like a more obvious choice would be a younger, more conventional leading man to play this type of character like Nick mm. who... Couldn't afford him. Maybe, maybe <laughs> that's it. But who who's heroic and funny and smooth but also tough and a little haunted. And yeah. Instead, they cast Atkins, this man in his 40s, uh, to play this role. And I think it works because he seems to naturally have the traits for it. Yeah. But also, it gives the impression that maybe in this fictional sleepy town of Antonio Bay, he just happens to be the coolest guy. Like, it's yeah, a, yeah. a big fish, small pond yeah, kind of yeah, deal, yeah, yeah. you know? And I, I just love the whole thing of... Um, him and Curtis's me cute, you know, yeah. when she's hitchhiking and he picks her up and she says something like, uh, Are you weird? Yeah, yeah. And he's the, like, Yes, yes, yes I, am. I am weird. <laughs> and she responds, Thank God the last guy to pick me up was so normal, it was disgusting. <laughs> like, it's really good. Um, and then he says, Oh, I thought you hadn't hitchhiked before. And she goes, like, Well, I didn't until this week, mm. but you're actually my 13th. And he's like, Great, weird, and unlucky. Like, it's really good, like, charade yeah, kind of like yeah. old timey Hollywood dialogue, you know, when you couldn't show, like, sex on screen yeah. or an, a woman's ankle and you had to, like, really <laughs> amp it up with, like, good dialogue. Like, yeah. It feels like that. And Atkins was in his 40s when this movie is made. Curtis is in her 20s. And generally, something like that might take me out of the movie because I find myself sometimes rolling my eyes when I see kind of mm. older, very established male actors paired up with. A younger female star on the up and up, yeah. and to to play a romance. But I, I didn't think about it at all here, to the extent that I only really realised the age gap when I was doing the research yeah. for the set. Were you <laughs> yeah. the same? Or? Pretty much. I knew he was older, um, uh, or at least that he seemed older. But like, he's just so charming that really, like yeah. he went uh, from within five minutes of getting in the truck, Jamie Lee Curtis is like shit, maybe. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, like, I felt all that stuff is just like, I really bought it and mm. in a way that felt like very true to life and kind of not really the screenwriting you see in movies. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, the, the human details. Yeah. And I, I think the relationship really works because it, it makes sense to make Nick a character older for like the reasons I said, mm. but but also they have like really good chemistry and like I, I think the scene of them in bed together after they've slept together they're just in bed talking and you, you know you feel the connection it's funny at the top of the scene where he says very casually like can I ask you something what's your name <laughs> and she says Elizabeth and he just goes Nick and they're just so naturally comfortable with each other that it, it the fact that they were it just intimate without knowing each other's names mm. isn't a big deal yeah, yeah like yeah, I, I thought yeah. that was like another kind of nice detail yeah and um and I think like after that their relationship does take a, a, a backseat to the plot stuff but by that point I'm fully rooting for them and I think he gets like the scene you mentioned and uh, like a couple other ones like some solid scenes in the more horror parts of the movie like he's a fisherman and yeah his fisherman friends were out on a boat the night the fog comes in for the first time and are killed by mm. Blake's ghost crew so they aren't back 
at the port the next day for work and Atkins realises something must be wrong and he wants to get the Coast Guard out to look for them and everyone else is like oh, I'm sure it's all good they yeah, probably just yeah, got drunk yeah. and fell asleep on the boat and he has to be the one to convince people like something terrible must have happened and he says something like I've drank with them so many times on the boat like not once did it get so bad mm. that like we couldn't make it back in and he says about one of them in particular like he's too good of a sailor not mm. to stay out to, he's too good of a sailor to stay out all night and not let someone know and someone says back <laughs> he sounds like his wife and he says just frustratingly under his breath like just his friend that's my favourite line of the that's movie really, that's my favourite exchange you just yeah. love him like yeah, I yeah. love this guy like, yeah I want, him lo- I want him, him looking out for me yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he j- and there's like the gravitas mm, you know yeah and um, I also think another smart writing move by Carpenter and Deborah Hill is that they pepper in to the script that Nick's fisherman dad had a weird supernatural occurrence. You know, that thing about the, the Spanish coin, the doubloon. Yeah, yeah. So it lets you know a little bit more about Nick's history. His father was a fisherman too. You know, this is all he's ever really known. Yeah. But also helps to explain why Nick accepts quickly what's happening in Tony Bay is yeah. like not of this natural earth you know yeah, <laughs> like it's yeah. something supernatural in origin and uh, it also gives Atkins a space to over this pretty effective monologue mm. you know? um, yeah and I, I just think the cast in this is really good all around yeah you know, it's like, so good um, yeah Hal, Hal Holbrook Janet yeah. Lee John uh, Carpenter's cameo where's his cameo he's at the start he's the repairman for the church oh and he's, yeah he asks Hal Holbrook he's like father can I get paid today and Hal Holbrook's like how about you come in a bit later tomorrow? He was so young. <laughs> yeah, he yeah, that movie. crazy. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't really know him as sort of an older. Yeah, yeah. Because he has the the, fuck, the massive head of hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah the, the droopy mustache. That seems very yeah. funny. Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was. Uh, I just want to shout out. Um, my favorite podcast, Bank Check, did a really good series on Carpenter's movies, all the way from Dark Star to his last movie, The Ward. And they highlighted that the quality of Carpenter's movies seems to decline with him or his producers putting less care into who they cast in the movies or which stars Carpenter decides to work on Mm. projects with, like, you know, putting Chevy Chase at the center of an Invisible Man movie. (laughs) But um, and I'm sure there are other reasons why Carpenter's later work is not as strong as his 80s output. But like earlier in his career, like he was so great at finding these actors like Jamie Lee Curtis or Kurt Russell mm-hmm. and making them stars. Yeah. Or great character actors like Tom Atkins and Keith David and Victor Wong and working with them a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, like Atkins has a small part in Escape from New York. Um, he's the lead in Halloween 3, which mm-hmm. Carpenter produces and does the music for. And um, yeah, in fact, a lot of people who worked on The Fog worked on Halloween 3, which is probably a good segue into that. Yeah. 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 Um, do you have the plot for it? I do indeed. Tom Atkins plays Dr. Dan Chalice, the most divorced man in America. <laughs> After a patient claiming to have discovered a conspiracy surrounding Silver Shamrock Halloween masks is murdered, Chalice meets the man's barely legal daughter, Ellie, played by Stacey Nelkin, and, fueled by a need for the truth and horniness, Chalice agrees to drop everything and investigate. It's getting late. I could use a drink. Let's take our time. It's okay with you? To stay, I mean. I, I think these... Uh Clothes could probably hold out for at least one more day. Maybe I had to get another room. That would look sort of suspicious, wouldn't it? What I mean is, if you'd uh, feel more comfortable, uh, I could sleep in the car. Be better in this floor, anyway. Where do you want to sleep, Dr. Chalice? That's a dumb question, Miss Grimpridge. Um, I'm glad you picked out my favorite thread of the movie. Yeah, that, like he's forty percent wants answers, but he's sixty percent wants to get closer to Ellie. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And listen, I won't lie; I'd be the same. <laughs> um, so I, I only really like the 1978 Halloween. I've seen up to I think the fourth or fifth Halloween, 
and I don't really like any of them except the original um, but I think we had a fun time when we saw the first David Gordon Green one it's grand my estimation has kind of lowered since, since the kills. years have gone by yeah, yeah, yeah. and kills yeah um, I can kind of take or leave the others uh, but I think Halloween 3 was like an interesting experiment and deserved to be continued at the very least for another film and if they ca- couldn't get it right then right or you know make the money then then you know what fair enough I think the idea could have used some refinement still the whole idea is like it, it doesn't involve Michael Ryer, Michael Myers Jamie Lee Curtis isn't back uh, the only really returning people are John Carpenter and Nancy Loomis as Tom An- Tom Atkins's um, uh, ex-wife what's that actress name Nan- Nancy, Nancy Keys yeah, and yeah. then she goes professionally by Nancy Loomis Um she should have been in way more movies. Like maybe she just decided to up and quit. Fair enough, but uh, I really, I, I think she's hilarious. Yeah. Every time I see her in a movie, I laugh like a drain. She's really um, a scald in this movie. Mm. But then the more we learn about Tom Atkins, you're like, actually, I kind of get it. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah, <laughs> um, and so I think the whole idea of like leaving out Michael Myers. Um, uh, could have used some refinement but the idea of a series of films connected only by a title and seasonal theme is too interesting not to go further into I think um, and I think maybe it could have been better had it focused on like actual witches and not rocks stolen from Stonehenge androids and masks <laughs> so that shoot weird. lasers in order to rot the heads of the children wearing them kind of an everything in the kitchen sink kind of horror if you think about it but it doesn't work as well as some others we've covered on the podcast like The Empty Man I was going to say yeah. Yeah. I thought you'd dig this for it's kind of um, I enjoy its campy yeah, charm the and the humour kind of yeah. thing where it's like okay we're putting this element in here too <laughs> well yeah I would if it wasn't all so silly whereas yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the Empty Man treats everything as kind of like completely seriously yeah, sure, and has the like the aesthetic of a true detective episode basically whereas this has the aesthetic of an 80s John Carpenter movie yeah very yeah. like I think it's very pretty yeah like it is fog, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I know what you mean that it's it's quite camp I mm, suppose yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we should probably mention that this is one of those kind of movies that came out got very poor reviews by critics and has gone on to be considered like a, if not like a cool classic kind of a cool favourite yeah, for horror yeah, fans yeah. and um, six more days till Halloween 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 six more days till Halloween silver shamrock <laughs> um, we'd be torn alive if we didn't put that one in for sure absolutely yeah. uh, the, all those uh, the, the the tens of people who listen to the yeah. show <laughs> come, come at us with pitchforks um, but this one those movies where like you hear about a lot of monumental movies that got bad reviews and there are classics like you know, Blade Runner or The Thing or The Shining and you think like who? and with this one I'm like yeah I kind of get why yeah, this one yeah. wasn't that big because like hampered by the title it's uh, it's already a weird choice after releasing two very successful movies that tell a continuous story about you know this teenager Laurie mm. Strode and the killer that stalks her to then rebrand as an anthology and release a movie that does not feature Mike Myers that's one thing uh-huh. Um, but also the title Halloween 3 yeah. <laughs> does imply yeah. a continuation of the Laurie Michael story and you're kind of like if it was just Season of the Witch a Halloween story or a Halloween yeah. Season of the Witch maybe would have been a little better but like if I had only if I'd seen that title without see, uh, with seeing the first two films I would have thought they're putting Michael Myers on a broom especially the fact that with the internet that we're just constantly inundated by people like dissecting trailers and like horror websites and stuff like that like I know I feel like I know way too much about movies now mm. when I go to see them but yeah, back in the day yeah, it wasn't yeah. like that so yeah. you choked to this being like nah I'm gonna see my old friend Michael Myers you know <laughs> and then you're like who's oh, this pal. Irish guy yeah <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and then just on top. You're fired, it's Dan. Not, it's not even a slasher movie. It's a yeah, uh, it's a yeah. horror sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I also think like yeah, it's, it's the the villains are Irish toy makers. Um, their plan involves pieces of Stonehenge <laughs> that they stole. They, there's a part where it's like, how did you steal the pieces from Stonehenge? And they're like, oh, it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> then you never. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really bizarre section of a bizarre film in which two outsiders stumble into Ryan's daughter. If it was a horror film, <laughs> yeah. there are Stafford wives or Westworld esque kind of mm. human-like robot henchman. Um, it's very strange even without being part of the Halloween franchise. Yeah. And um, yeah, and it's got very murky plot beats. Villains' motivations don't really get that. Yeah. Um, Insane characters. I love the bit where you, you're introduced to like six characters at once when they arrive in the town and Tom Atkins comes back into the room with Ellie and he's like, this place is a like zoo! A zoo. <laughs> yeah. And he's right, it is. It is like a zoo. Um, but I, I do think a lot of horror fans like how weird this is and I think yeah it actually becomes so strange that it feels surrealistic. Yeah. <laughs> like, the plot doesn't progress in a way that makes literal sense, but more in the way dreams or nightmares do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when... The more... I, when I was reading about it after the movie, it seems like that was intended when you see who worked on it, because he took his name off of it after certain changes were made to the original screenplay. But it's the plot is said to be similar to the original script that was written by Nigel Neal who created the Quartermass series. Oh, wow. So he's not some bozo. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, yeah. coming into this and being like, oh, I slap Halloween on, like, this other movie. You know, like, it's actually like a guy who's like, well, no, this actually really is the type of thing that would creep me out, you know? Mm. Um, and, like, and he said that, he was talking about his original script and he said that it had to do with deception, psychological shocks rather than physical ones, which um, I feel the finished film retains a good bit of that. And... Mm. I also think in a similar way to The Fog, this is a great vibey movie just to throw on if you're in the mood for something spooky in the run-up to October 31st because I think it's actually a better Halloween movie in terms of the holiday Halloween. Yeah, I could see that, yeah. And the yeah. original because it's more it's filled with more iconography mm. of the holiday, you know, the you know, trick-or-treaters, the masks, the pumpkins. The, Irish people. The, <laughs> the silver shamrock jingle, you know, um, which runs through the movie and the first time you hear it is very cute and then the 50th time you've heard it is the most uh, menacing thing yeah, you've ever yeah. heard when you, once you realise the bad guy's plans yeah. I will um, say that they do get the pronunciation of Samhain right in this that's true as opposed to Donald Pleasant saying Sam Hain <laughs> um, I also think that this movie's opening credit sequence is gorgeous oh it's um, the it's the um, it's set to the John Carpenter like electro score mm. and it's just the cast and crew's names in this bright blue font over a staticky background of um, orange lines which keep changing and it's only at the end we realise the orange lines form the outline of a pumpkin <laughs> which appears in the Silver Shamrock ad at the end of the movie yeah. it does all the the strobe lights yeah. you know um, even, I just think a lot of craft went into this for how yeah, I think is, no I think you know? you're right yeah absolutely because um, I feel like if you watch the, the Halloween movies that come immediately after this uh, not a lot of craft no, no. Yeah. yeah you can tell how good the, a Halloween movie is just by looking at Michael Myers' mask except for Halloween Kills you, that's no <laughs> well we, you know me I'm, yeah, I'm kind of yeah, like we won't oh, get into yeah, that this year um, Halloween ends yeah COVID <laughs> um I think I think this is the moment this is the film where Tom Atkins kind of got his big um kind of iconic horror actor moment you know like George in George George C Scott has um his slime and stink monologue at the end of the Exorcist 3 and Ash has this like cutting off his hand in the um in the Evil Dead 2 and that's where these kind of characters really become iconic um whereas at, and then at the end of Halloween 3 he's uh Tom Atkins is like stop stop turn it off down the end of a phone that's the weirdest thing it, it ends with like 
the main the protagonist on a phone I like it I like it too but it's, it's it's a strange decision I imagine if I was in the cinema and you're like like a uh, uh, slight spoilers he's trying to prevent a bad thing and he's on the phone and he's like he thinks he's done it and then he realises that he hasn't mm. and it's like him he starts off being really like low and intense being like stop it stop it stop it and then by the end he's like stop it stop it and like sweat's pouring down his face and it's really good but you don't see if he's successful in stopping it or if he isn't and we've seen already what what will happen like with like a test subject yeah yeah. And you kind of, part of me kind of wanted to see it happen. Mm, yeah, like, I get it. Yeah, to yeah, everybody. Yeah, yeah. And just in terms of the, like, the, the audacity of having an ending like that. And I imagine people in the cinema, like the fact that it doesn't, I kind of like that it, we, we don't know what happens because it kind of lingers in your head and it's very haunting. Mm. But I imagine people in the cinema at the time just flipping their chairs. <laughs> like, it doesn't even end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, There's another thing that this movie had, um, the people had their knives out, I'm sure, about yeah. it. But um, part of me likes to imagine that Atkins' characters in The Fog and Halloween 3 are the same because they're both set in California. So maybe Nick from The Fog left fishing behind, became a doctor, had to change his name to Dan for some yeah. reason and then got married and then divorced. And All that, in the space of two years. And then grew a grew great mustache yeah, yeah, <laughs> over that yeah. two years. I feel like Dan feels a bit like Nick from The Fog if he was going through a real rough patch. Mm. And like, because he's similarly kind of rugged and stoic and a bit flirty in Halloween 3, but seems like just a little more tired and beaten down by life and also a tad more desperate yeah, in terms yeah, of the yeah. seducing. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, I think he does a great job of showing that Dan is shaken up by what happened at the hospital with Ellie's dad and does want answers, but also a lot of what is driving him is, you know, trying to get close to Ellie. Yeah. Um, his character is a real lo- low-key horn dog in this because... Low key. Yeah, well, I, I think looking because when I was watching it, I was like laughing hysterically at all like his. Uh, I I thought obvious, you know, kind of like yeah. things to trying to get closer to Ellie. And then I was rewatching scenes when I'm like it actually plays a very close to the chest. Mm. Like it's own. I don't know. I guess in isolation they all seem very kind of minor but when like you're actually watching the movie, it's like yeah, Jesus, yeah. give it a rest, <laughs> you know. Um, like there's after you have that scene with the wife and you actually you do feel a little bit bad for him because he's like trying to balance being a doctor and he's trying to be there for his kid but he's like gets the wrong doll or yeah, whatever and all yeah. that stuff or the wrong mask Halloween mask and stuff um, but then like a couple of scenes later he's in the hospital walking down a corridor with a nurse and he's like I should have married you Agnes and then like slaps him yeah. <laughs> and then we see him like in a couple of scenes later like being flirty with the, the female coroner he seems to have had a prior romantic relationship with who's looking into what happened yeah. to Ellie's dad so very quickly you're like well if he was acting like this <laughs> and he was married you know I get why it didn't work out <laughs> you know and I think the main example of his kind of horn dogness is those rarity scenes with Ellie. Like, she suggests when they enter this Silver Shamrock town, which has cameras all over the streets, that they come up with a plan. And he's like, we could pose as a couple of buyers. Maybe rent a couple of rooms in that motel yeah. um, that way at least we'd have some place to talk without the whole town watching us and you're a bit like yeah I'm sure that's the reason yeah that's how. exactly it you yeah. know and then like he introduced them as husband and wife at the motel so they sort of end up having to stay in the same room and so they get there and she says let's go directly to the factory and he's like whoa slow down it's getting late um, I could use a drink <laughs> let's take our time I can get another day out of these clothes um, like it's anything to stay close with her and then in fairness he does say Although this could be as part of his plan, like, you know, maybe I should get another room. Like, oh, and she says, won't that look suspicious? And he replies, like, I can sleep in my car if that'd make you more comfortable. And she says, where do you want to sleep, Dr. Chalice? (laughs) Real general hospital vibes. Yeah, he takes a big pause and says, that's a dumb question, Miss Miss Grimbridge. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then they, you know, they start making out. 
and um, and the middle aged men everywhere like yes finally and then the, 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 then later their neighbour in the motel gets killed and they hear it happening as mm. they're having sex and Ellie asks in a startled way like what was that and he's like who cares <laughs> 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 like, he cares way, way more about sex than solving the mystery mm. yeah. and I think he plays that in a very um, funny yeah. deadpan way yeah. you know um but I also, again, like in The Fog, I do think when when there is the shift to kind of more overt horror, I think he does bring the gravitas. I do find mm. that last scene where of him screaming over the phone, I know it's a bit like uncinematic yeah, <laughs> that it's over yeah. a phone, but um, it did give me kind of chills, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. yeah. The podcast studios are opening their doors to everyone this culture night. Come see the place where your favourite Headstuff Podcast Network shows are made. Get behind-the-scenes access, learn about production, and record your very own five-minute podcast. This is an opportunity not to be missed. Join us Friday the 23rd of September. Register on eventbrite.ie or see the Culture Night website for more details. We look forward to seeing you there. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Um, we move on to Night of the Creeps. Sure. <clears throat> Thrill me. Thrill me. <laughs> um, Tom Atkins plays Detective Ray Cameron, a depressed, alcoholic and borderline insane homicide detective investigating the case of a murder and a missing corpse on a university campus. Said missing corpse turns out to be an incubator for alien brain slugs which turn their hosts into zombies. It's the part of this is what I love about these horror episodes. I can just describe the most insane plots possible. <laughs> yes. College students Chris, played by Jason Lively. Yes, he is Blake Lively's brother. JC, Steve Marshall, and Cynthia Cronenberg, played uh, play by Jill Whitlow, become wrapped up in the B-movie shenanigans which follow. I took my 12-gauge with me. I tracked him and I found him. And when I found him, I leveled off that shotgun right at his chest. Spanky, guess what happened next? Should you be telling me this? Close. I pulled the trigger. That's all real exciting and everything, but listen, I've got a midterm. I wrapped study. his body in a plastic bag. I buried him in a vacant lot. The lot right behind your girlfriend's sorority. Of course, it isn't a vacant lot anymore. Now the house mother's cottage is sitting right on top of it. Look, detective. Now, I don't mean to be rude or anything, but other than just kind of wanting to confess to a murder, is there a point to this story? Spanky. That's exactly what I'm trying to figure out. So this is a 
pretty essentially kind of a parody of 50s and 60s horror films uh, like they came from outer space or something similar uh, and I, I think none of the concepts here like alien brain slugs zombies or um, uh, is there any other horror concepts in here I guess kind of slasher maybe um, yeah the beginning the with yeah the, the slasher vibes yeah um, yeah no it's, it's, it's really riffing on those yeah. 50s movies like it came from outer space yeah. the blob you know yeah. so none, none of the concepts may be unique but I think mixing them all together does, does make something fresh and exciting and um, it's definitely one of the most quotable horror movies out there uh, mostly oh, thanks gosh. to um, uh, Detective Ray Cameron who um, surprisingly um, depressed though he may be he's pretty good at his job and is often like left in despair at the shoddy police work all around him because he's he, uh, our introduction to him is insane where he's introduced having a dream and uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, dressed in a white suit being handed a Mai Tai on a beach and seeing this woman rise from the waves and then it turns into a nightmare I uh, laughed hysterically when it's him it's in him in an all white suit yeah drinking cocktail out of a coconut <laughs> yeah. to him by a beautiful woman I was thinking is it a running joke in these movies that women just can't resist yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then it does turn into this uh, nightmare scene that's yeah. actually quite effective and yeah. haunting yeah, yeah. Um, and like he shows up um, when he gets the call out about the murder um, from the desk sergeant at the precinct and he shows up and he's like First, and it's the same guy he's talking to, the desk sergeant, he's like, first, who lets two rookies uh, take a homicide case? And second, when does a desk sergeant show up on a call out? And you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah, These good, are good questions. Yeah, yeah. It's like Showtime at the Apollo when he shows up. He delivers like 25 amazing singers in like two minutes. Like, where... <laughs> Someone's like, you're looking at your actual cryogenics lab. They've had a kid's body on ice here since 1959. And he says back, what is this, a homicide or a bad B movie? <laughs> and then like, there's, they look at a dead body and someone says like, it was a grad student. He, he was scheduled to work here this evening. And he replies, looks like he worked a little too hard, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All that stuff is great. Or every time he answers the phone, he's like, thrill me. <laughs> um, I think the, the funniest moment for me is when... Um, all the crazy all the crazy shit is happening but like the main three college characters don't really know what's going on and so Cynthia Cronenberg arrives at Chris Romero's door <laughs> uh, and asks him to go for a walk and then he's walking with um, his friend JC who's on um, which I forget what stands John, John Carpenter, Carpenter. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, who, who's, uh, who's disabled and walks on crutches and um, Cynthia Cronenberg is like oh it's all just too much and kind of rests her head on uh, Chris's chest and he's just, he looks over at uh, JC and just quietly high fives and the look of ecstasy on his face is hilarious yeah, like yeah. He's the, it's the first time he's ever been touched by a woman other than his mother <laughs> which we know is not true and he but has to immediately shift back to being kind of console concer- consoled yeah. and concerning yeah, yeah yeah it is very funny zombies exploding heads creepy crawlies and a date for the formal <laughs> this is classic spanky that's another great one another great one is um I got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. It's What's like, the bad news? They're dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like, I, I think this, like, really captures the silly charms of one of those old 50s movies, but just with better production values and special effects, more modern pacing and tone. I was really impressed by the screenplay. Yeah. Like, kind of the reasons you mentioned where it's like, I could never really tell where it was going. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. it, 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 because of the mesh of all those different elements, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, it's it's written by, it was written and directed by Fred Decker, who's mm. like a, um, I don't really know him very well because I've never seen The Monster Squad or Robocop 3. Mm. But um, I know he, he works with Shane Black quite a bit because I think he yeah. wrote on the, the Predator movie and like they did a TV pod together. Yeah, and doing Night of the Creeps was how Tom Atkins got the role in Lethal Weapon. Sure, of course, yeah, yeah that makes yeah. sense. Um, and 
yeah, just I love the, the that ten minute opening scene that takes place in the fifties is so gorgeously mm, shot. Yeah. And you know, the black and white, the period style clothes, the haircuts and the dialogue. And it, it does that thing where it's like you're so like, oh, this is nice until it gets like really yeah. dark and turn. And then you know, the story flashes forward thirty years and it's kind of slowly pieced throughout the movie how important that opening scene is and the full extent of the extraterrestrial threat. And um so I thought all that was really good. I also thought in a way that reminded me of a Shane Black script that um the the lead characters, you know, like the the two college students and this detective played by Tom Atkins, like at first they feel like very archetypal characters, mm. but over the course of the movie they suddenly get more and more fleshed out to the extent that by the end of it I was like I would take a bullet for any of them. Like I really <laughs> I really liked all the characters, particularly J C and you know Ray Cameron. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, yeah, just all those Saraki replies. Yeah. <laughs> but I but I think what's cool is you realize over the course of the movie that he, he's never really gotten over what happened to the love was like yeah, thirty years yeah. ago and also what he did next and like slight spoilers but we, we find out in this incredibly delivered monologue um, from Atkins that instead of arresting the man who killed her Detective Cameron went out with a shotgun killed him and buried him in what later became part of the college campus where all this weird stuff is happening is it all connected? yes but in, a, in ways you might not expect yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but you, you seem like you want to say something yeah no monologue. it's just that bit where it, um, he finishes the monologue and Chris looks at him and says, look, detective, I don't mean to be rude, but other than they're just trying to confess to a murder, is there a point to this story? And he's like, Spanky, that's exactly what I'm trying to figure out. The whole monologue is amazing. Because yeah. it starts off with him just kind of talking casually to the college student Chris, who's sort of mm. the main character. And Atkins is pouring a drink and he's smoking and he's moving his hands around. But as his character begins to recount the more grizzly details, he becomes so still and intense. Like he even stops blinking. And the effect is that it, it feels like his character is putting all his energy into holding back his emotions, you know, his anger, his sadness, so that he can finally just unburden himself of this secret he's been holding on for 30 years. And it's so well done. But I think it's even more impressive is that Atkins and Decker, you know, the right director, they mm. find really effective pockets of comedy in that scene that yeah. isn't shouldn't be funny yeah because yeah. like Cameron says to Chris like when I found the guy that did this I leveled off a shotgun right at his chest guess what happened next and Chris is like should you be telling me this and he says close <laughs> pull the trigger <laughs> completely ignores <laughs> and then Chris says that's all really exciting and everything but listen I've got a midterm and Cameron just says over him I buried him in a vacant lot <laughs> it's so darkly funny yeah um yeah, and I, I think like that he is a really good cop, but I, I do think like having this sarcastic, sardonic act and this police work is the way he was able to kind of like keep going, like give himself a yeah. purpose after what happened in the past. But the events of this night in the 80s that is linked to that previous event is bringing everything he repressed to the surface. And uh, I just think Atkins, again, plays that in a way that's... Um, literally, in some cases. Literally, yeah. absolutely true, true. Um, I just think he plays that in a way that's so funny, but uh, it has real pathos. And um, yeah, great movie. Yeah. Really, really yeah. liked it. It was a, a real... Um, had nothing. I knew nothing about it aside from the title going into it. And when it began in the 50s, I was like, oh, is the whole thing in black and white? Yeah. And, um, but, uh, but, and when it kind of pushed forward to the 80s, I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then I, I instantly like loved the 80s stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I've watched it four times since I've seen it and I only watched it a year ago. <laughs> it's a, it's a, and again, it's one of those movies that isn't too disturbing that like it's a good one to just kind of throw on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fun. yeah. I did find it oddly emotional. I thought the stuff with Chris and JC like, yeah, was really, yeah, really yeah. beautiful yeah. in, yeah, in, in a so weird well. way. In the middle of this very kind of like splattery. Yeah, I, I, will, I won't lie. I think Chris is kind of an asshole. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people are like that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah it makes him more human, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, um, there's a bit where he's like... Um, they're fighting off the zombies towards the end and Cynthia's like oh let's get let's get in this tool shed uh, to hide from them and they get in 
closed the door and the zombies surrounded the shed and there's no other way out and he's like oh great idea <laughs> yeah it's like she didn't know about the zombies until five minutes ago also, you this, she deserves someone better you've like been me. like stalking this woman yeah <laughs> yeah and then the minute she does something you don't like you turn on her that way yeah um, yeah yeah but but the, you know I, I i just the kind of loyalness of jc yeah i, I yeah. thought it was really beautiful yeah. it really struck with me um they're the kind of three main ones. Mm, thing. Yeah. You watch Creepshow where Atkins is a very small role. I will. I'll uh, I'll do I'll do this quickly. Um so Atkins plays Stan, the abusive father of EC Comics fan Billy, Joe Hill, who thankfully decided not to continue acting and went into <laughs> writing instead. Uh, um for for anyone curious, his full name is Joe Hillstrom King. He's Stephen King's son who wrote um Creepshow. Uh, wrote the five stories of Creepshow, two of which are based on his own work. Um and George Romero directed son. So Stan, the abusive father of EC Comics fan Billy, he bins the he bins his son's horror comic, deeming it crap, and then smacks his son. And we're then treated to the five different stories within the issue of Creepshow before finally seeing how Stan gets his just desserts. So the Atkins's segments are basically wraparounds, are, and they're kind of um, writer Stephen King and director George Romero's answer to kind of all the naysayers and satanic, satanic panic weirdos that disapproved of the eighties horror boom. Uh, you know, the thing that made Stephen King and George Romero all their money. Um, <laughs> and I suppose it's worth asking who really won in the end, though, considering horror is the only other cultural juggernaut in cinemas next to superhero movies. At least the only consistent one. You know, True. there's at least five horror movies a year. Um, and it feels like there's 20 coming out this month. I know, it's great, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, really I can't really wait for Smile. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And this is kind of a fun house movie. It's a haunted, ho- or a haunted house ride at a fairground. You can kind of see the spit and tape holding it together. That's part of the fun. Seeing like now more serious actors like Ed Harris um, or... I know that face. Uh, former subject, Leslie Nielsen. Leslie Nielsen, yeah. Or um, uh, The Good Places, Ted Danson, all mm-hmm. kind of doing this stuff. Stuff you'd never see them doing today, essentially. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And uh, it kind of fits the vibe of the goofier stories in Stephen King's earlier collections, like Night Shift. Like this, um, there's a there's one called I can't remember what it's called. Um, it involves a hitman who's just assassinated a toy maker, being sent a box of living army men, living toy army men, as revenge, and them attacking him. And eventually, they detonate a thermo a miniature thermonuclear warhead in his apartment. Very funny story. Um, yeah, my, my I think my favorite two out of the five were something to tide you over. The former, which uh, the former of which has Leslie Neil, airplanes Leslie Nielsen drown the good places Ted Danson, <laughs> and the crate the latter which of which has Hal Holbrook killing his wife with an evil monkey. <laughs> yeah, which is Barbo in that one. The, yeah, she, yeah, she's yeah, um, that one's Holbrook's really good. Wife. Yeah. yeah, it is really good. Yeah, and the other three are a bit kind of goofy, dull, or bad or a combination of all three and uh, they didn't really affect me as much like the second one I think the the sad death of Joan Lee Jordy Vell or something is a character who touches a meteorite and ends up with moss growing all over him and he's played by Stephen King uh, who also shouldn't have gone into acting Um <laughs> Uh, you didn't like him in It Chapter 2 when he the whole thing I actually did quite like him in It Chapter <laughs> 2 he, he's definitely grown as an actor since then um, uh, yeah no uh, like is Ed Harris he, he hates bugs no that's the last story Ed Harris is in the first one yeah. where it's like this family who 
who uh, whose grandfather was killed by their great aunt or whatever um, and basically the grandfather comes back and starts killing them all cool. I, yeah. like, I, I really seen, pitiless I haven't seen this in like eight years but mm. I remember like in the bug one um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we move on to my boy Vantime mm. but like Atkins not doesn't really get enough space to kind of really leave an impression in the hunt I suppose yeah pretty yeah. much yeah I mean like it's kind of it's I actually wouldn't mind seeing a film of the kind of the wraparound segment with a better actor for the son, maybe Elliot from uh, ET. Well, he's still acting. You know, it's true. Like, uh, well, not Harry now. Potter. I mean, back then. <laughs> they Asian. Yeah, yeah he's the Irishman yeah, tech. Yeah. Um, to be honest, at the, as I mentioned at the top, the Fog Night, the Creeps, and Halloween Three were what I wanted to cover with Atkins, but um, I did want to check out like a fourth movie, and I saw using the 2009 remake of my Bloody Valentine 3D, which I remember. Um, I, I was 14 when it came out, and I, all I remember was the poster of a miner holding a pickaxe as if it was coming out. Yeah. the poster and being like that movie looks intense mm-hmm. so um, and I never heard anyone really talking about it since then but I saw it was a big hit and was pretty critically well regarded for a slasher yeah. movie like it has like 60% Rotten Tomatoes it's not bad it's, like, re- it's a remake isn't it it's a remake yeah. of a, a popular Canadian slasher movie from the 80s oh, which... they make the best ones <laughs> is that true <laughs> <laughs> well Black uh, Christmas is unreal I suppose yeah yeah, yeah. Um, no it's it, the 80s one's much loved but I think is a bit like horror fans love it right but um, I'm not sure if it was like a huge like, commercial hit mm. but so and I haven't seen that so I went into this kind of completely cold apart from Killer Minor Man yeah it's actually got a very convoluted plot on Valentine's Day 1997 six miners become trapped underground by an explosion at the Hanninger Mine in the small community of Harmony get it the town is called Harmony uh, that's what we call irony clever um, <laughs> by the time the rescuers reach the miners they find one man Harry Warden alive but he's in a coma further investigations reveal that Warden actually killed the other miners to conserve oxygen and Tom Hanninger played by Jansen Eccles of Supernatural and the Boys fame he's the son of the mine owner mine's owner he's blamed for the explosion as he forgot to vent um, methane lines that mm. caused the collapse. So then one year later, Warden awakens from his coma, goes on a killing spree. At the mine, he tries to murder Tom Hanninger, but Sheriff Burke, by, by Tom Atkins, arrives and shoots Warden before he can do so. And Warden staggers away deeper into the mine, bleeding um, from his gunshot wound and is not seen by the public again. So that's all prologue. Ru- that's like Jesus. <laughs> in the first five minutes yeah. of the movie. Um, most of the movie takes place 10 years later when Tom Hanninger returns to Harmony after his father dies to sell the mine which angers the town community not long after he arrives a man dressed as a miner starts killing people and so the question is who's doing the killing is it Warden's back or is it someone else with a different motive right yeah I found it or what used to be it what the hell is this animals must have got on him animals was he dead or not when you buried him damn right he was dead there was no pulse. I shot the son of a bitch dead. Yeah, and we buried him right here. It was a better burial than he deserved. And you're sure he was dead, Ben? There's no way he could be alive. God damn it. I want statements from the both of you. And you, I want you back at the station now. We got a dead miner to discuss. Come on, Sarah. Come on, gentlemen. What were you doing at the mine earlier? I was doing my job. You're the suspect, not me. I like slasher movies in that I like the kind of immediate tension that comes from the premise of like there's a person who's killing people and the main characters have to stop them and sometimes that involves trying to work out who the killer is and that brings a bit of mystery and I think it's a sub-genre that can be very thrilling. Hmm. Easily kind yeah. of thrilling. That's it. There are tropes of the genre I don't really like in that... Um, 
and I think it's why people don't take slashes very seriously in mm. general like the wider kind of cinematic yeah. community um, I'd say those tropes are unnecessary gratuitous female nudity mm-hmm. um, an emphasis on jump scares and extreme violence over actual suspense mm-hmm. uh, I think my belief of Valentine does suffer from having those elements which makes me not love it and makes it a bit lesser than the other movies we've covered on the show to, See, my so far. bloody Valentine take note of that <laughs> that's it there thank is, you Stephen there is enough things in it to recommend about it that I, I did enjoy it overall um, I think the setup is strong it's a good mystery too in that I genuinely thought I had called who the killer was but I was completely wrong oh. and the movie intentionally makes you think you cracked a mystery and then wrong foots you and I will say I do think the killer reveal without spoiling is problematic <laughs> for reasons mm. kind of bigger than the movie yeah. but it's also called My Bloody Valentine so I'm not expecting it to be too well behaved mm. and I must say I didn't see it coming um, a mine is a great setting for Harsepi's um, the killer wears mining clothes and a gas mask with a torch attached. Nice. Um, his weapon of choice is a big pickaxe. That's pretty scary as far as iconography goes, you know. And um, I think while the movie does at times emphasize kind of spidery violence over more suspenseful buildup of scenes, um, a lot of the carnage is really impressively staged. In the, and it was like the big sign point of this movie was the 3D element of it. And like I watch a 2D at home, but I'd say this would be quite fun to see in a cinema because there's just constantly axes and body parts <laughs> flying out at the viewer. And um, it's good, got a good cast too. Um, Jack, I think Jack Zachos is a really good actor. Um, he's great on the boys playing soldier boy kind of twisted version of Captain America um, there's other recognisable faces like Kerr Smith from Final Destination Jamie King from Sin City Eddie Gathagy who I think is in like Twilight and is in um, that movie Criminal Activities you watch for the Dabit episode my favourite ep- my favourite your, your favourite movie my favourite movie yeah. <laughs> yeah it's on your letterbox top it's my favourite movie out of Abbott's performances anyway <laughs> I'm not in it that much Abbott's the best did you see that video of Chris Rabbit dancing um, to prepare did, for the yeah. Forgiven yeah, looked hot. Um, <laughs> there's um, also you have Tom Atkins providing the movie's cred for horror fans, as often these legends of the genre that we cover on the show do in more recent movies. Mm. You know, and his casting seems to be referencing his role in Night of the Creeps, in that he he played a cop in that who committed an act of vigilante justice. And side spoilers, he's revealed to have been part of a similar scheme <gasps> in My Bloody Valentine. He's in this enough that I'm glad I watched it. Like it's not like a Bill Camp in Hostiles situation or a creep show situation. <laughs> yeah, or a creep show situation. But you you sort of wish he was in it more. He's in a good few scenes, but because his character is retired from the force after the time jump at the start of the movie, he's not really the focal point of a lot mm. of scenes. Like his character is not the one giving out orders. He's more in the background. He only has two or three moments to shine, and when he does, like it's nice to see him and he's his normal commanding self. There's a great scene where one of the miners picks a fight with Jensen Ackles' character in a bar, and Atkins' character breaks up and shouts everybody stand down yeah. god damn it <laughs> um, he he opens the movie with this um, with the prologue where his sheriff character visits the hospital where warden awoke from his coma and began his murder spree and Atkins enters and there's blood and limbs strewn everywhere and he just mutters to himself happy fucking Valentine's Day <laughs> which is like it's okay like he sells it but compared to some of the zingers he has in like Night of the Creeps mm. um, which I think is why he's casting this like it's a bit weak sauce and yeah. um like he doesn't have really any good like kind of one quippy one-liners here um i think a lot of the dialogue in this movie is quite perfunctory which is fine i'm like i'm not expecting like 
Mm. I don't know, Paddy Chaisevsky or whatever. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you're watching this for the set pieces, but you do wish Atkins got a bit more, you know, spicy dialogue because you know we can have so much yeah. fun with yeah. it. Um, but overall, it's pretty fun. Um, it's directed by Patrick Lussier. He went on to make uh, Drive Angry with Nicolas Cage, which is another kind of dumb but entertaining movie. Yeah. And which Tom Atkins is in. Tom Atkins is in. Also, Trick, a slash movie. Which Tom Atkins which is Tom in. Atkins, that was the point I was making. I, just, <laughs> I like that he's still working. It's cool. Yeah, it know? is. Yeah, yeah. Um, 87 as well. Really yeah, impressive. Yeah. yeah, and um, st- I think he, he thought I thought he looked great. Yeah, in didn't look that different yeah. than when he looked yeah. in the 80s. Then in My Boy Valentine, um, is that everything? I believe so. Okay, uh, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. If you have a friend who's really into movies, why not recommend them our show? Email I know the face at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to us. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you love I Know the Face, please consider donating five euro a month to us through Headstuff Plus, where you can find ex- uh, special exclusive bonus episodes. We have multiple available now in our Leading Legends series, focusing on A-listers like Kristen Stewart, Brad Pitt, Denzel Washington, Jodie Foster. Foster. Um, Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. And just an interest of the, the spooky season, I started a new blog called Fortnite Frights, where I talk about the most influential horror movie of the year, starting from 1920 up to today every fortnight hence the title Fortnite Frights doing the Lord's work yep. it's a, one, it's a yep. wonderful project yep. um, I'm going to do something new too follow me on Letterboxd I'm either Stephen Portz or Portsfolio um, you can also check me out at joe.e see you there at Cinefiles bye bye this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network a hub for the creative and the curious Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.